Gabby. I say, I've said this before, it's disgusting, isn't it? It's just disgusting how much talent the Mahar family has, and Quinn is just going to expand that by marrying Abby. It's not right. So if you're visiting, again, welcome. I don't know that we can say that too often, but we have just wrapped up a year-long series uh, from the book of Acts. Uh, we ended last week uh, a series that took us about 14 months. We worked our way through the book of Acts, and next week we're going to begin a much shorter series, about 12 weeks, uh, looking at the Apostles' Creed. Of course, we won't, won't preach the Apostles' Creed. We'll look at the various clauses in the Scripture that support um, those affirmations of faith. And so on that note, I brought a couple of books just as recommendations. If you are so inclined and would like to read along with that series for a little bit more depth and study, a couple of books here. This one is titled Rooted, the Apostles' Creed. It's written by a couple of PCA pastors. This is a second edition. We've got about a half dozen copies on the resource kiosk, and so you can pick up one out there if you'd like. And then this book, uh, what Christians Ought to Believe by Michael Bird, an introduction to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we do not have copies of it available, but you can, uh, you heard of this thing called Amazon? Uh, you can pull that up and order one if you'd like, and uh, both are excellent resources. Well, Chris mentioned it in his prayer that I won't be asking you to turn to the book of Acts, but if there, if there was a 29th chapter... That's what we would be looking at today. And of course, there is no Acts 29. At least there isn't in Scripture. But in a very real sense, we, as the church, are currently writing the history of Acts 29. God, through the Spirit, working through His people, even today, is writing the history of Acts 29. The church as it multiplies and grows and ultimately spreads to the end of the earth is the continuation of what the Holy Spirit began on the day of Pentecost. And it continues to this day. And so the book of Acts ends with Paul in Roman custody, under house arrest, uh, in the city of Rome where he remained for two years. And during that time, he wrote what we call the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. While under house arrest, he wrote those letters. And those letters to those particular churches, but to the, the church at large, tell us what the church, in other words, what, what we are supposed to be. Now, you may have noticed that there isn't a scripture passage printed in the bulletin today, which means that you're going to have to use your Bible, or you're going to have to grab a Bible from the pew rack, or you're going to have to uh, open your Bible app on your phone. Four prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, we're going to look at Philippians this morning. Not one particular passage, but really several parts of that letter. And that's why I didn't, it would be like printing the entire 
book of Philippians in your bulletin because we're going to be looking at a number of, of verses. But that's where we'll be. If you do have a pew Bible, you can make your way to page 981, page 980, 981. That's where Philippians is found. Hold your place there. Let's pray. And then throughout the sermon, not after the prayer like usual, but throughout the sermon, we will read from various passages. But let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever. Your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And as we look at one part of your word, an inspired letter given to us by the hand of the Apostle Paul, by the mind of Christ and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we believe it's just as applicable for us as it was for them. It's just as needful for us as it was for that church in Philippi. And so as we look at parts of that letter this morning, we believe it's not just an ancient letter, but it's your word. It is your word to us. And so open your word to us. Open our eyes and ears. Give us receptive hearts to receive what you would have us to receive and to respond in light of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps the understatement of all time, but many things have changed over the last 2,000 years. In A.D. 62, when Paul wrote uh, the, the Philippian epistle, the Roman Empire controlled a, a large part uh, of the known world at the time. The Roman Empire um, was vast, and, and our nation, the United States, would not be envisioned for nearly 1,700 more years. When Paul wrote this epistle, the entire population of the world was around 200 million. That's not even two-thirds the population of our nation. And we can think of example after example of, of what has changed over the last 2,000 years. But what has not changed is who the church is supposed to be, how the church should be characterized, and what the church is supposed to do. That, that hasn't changed. And, and in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he addresses all of that. And it's just as applicable today as it was then. I don't know if Chris knew what I was going to preach this morning when he introduced his prayer or when he led into that. I don't know. We haven't talked about that, have we, Chris? We didn't talk about it on Tuesday at our meeting. Amazing, because um, if you could just rewind and replay his introduction, you would have heard the sermon, or at least a large part of it. The church is meant to be, the church is called to be a community of grace. We're called to be a community and a people of grace. Grace is what makes us distinct. I shared a quote a few weeks ago from Bono, the lead singer of U2, and he said, I'm going to paraphrase the quote to make a little more sense of it. I'm just going to give you his, his central thought. He said, at the center of all religions, except Christianity, at the center of all religions, all religious systems, is the idea of karma. What you put out comes back to you. He says, but along comes this idea called grace to turn that on its head, to upend all of that. Friends, grace is what differentiates 
Christianity from every other religion. And the reason that we have hope is because grace is at the very heart of the gospel. And so we as the church, those who have built a foundation on the gospel with Jesus as the cornerstone, we we are called to be a community of grace. We're called to be characterized by grace. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. So I just have two main thoughts. You'll see them there in your bulletin, one and two. Two main thoughts and a couple of um, subordinate little bullet points to share with you. The first is that the church is meant to be characterized by grace-filled living. The, the, the church is called to be characterized. Christ has formed us and made us to be a people characterized by grace-filled living. Now, we know, and, and I hope you know, the church is not a building. Uh, it's not this building or any particular building. The church is not an organization. The, the church even etymologically, it's, it's, it's the, the word, ecclesia. It's the collection of called out people who are in covenant relationship with God. And so what that means is that the church is you. It means that the church is us. It means that we, when I say the church is meant to be characterized uh, by grace-filled living, what I mean is that we are meant to be characterized by grace-filled living. We, us. And so if you would, look at Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. We'll just keep reading until, until I stop reading. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." From these verses, what we see is grace-filled living. What grace-filled living is meant to look like, first, towards one another. Did you notice how many times in that short, uh, in that short section of Scripture, from the end of, chapter, or the end of chapter 1 through chapter 2, 
he uses the phrase having one mind, being in full accord, having the same love. Notice the admonition at the end of chapter 1. He says, whether I'm able to see this in person or whether I simply hear about it, I want to know that you are standing firm in the Spirit with one mind, locking arms, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And here's the picture that Paul is painting. As the church, and that's us, we are meant to stand side by side, arms locked, and work together for the gospel cause. Paul expects us to be engaged in a battle. He, he doesn't expect this to be easy. He says it's been granted to you not only to, um, it's been granted to you to suffer for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. He says you're going to be engaged in the same battle that you heard I had and, and now that I still have. We as, we, as we walk side by side in life together in one spirit of one mind, we are engaged in a battle. And so what's the battle? Paul says, engaged in the same sort of battle you, you saw that I have. It's a battle for hearts. It's a battle for the sake of the gospel. It's a battle for Jesus. It was not, it's not a battle for the sake of being combative. Friends, we are, we have a common cause and we are engaged in a, in a common battle. But we are not you understand? We're not fighting against one another. Right? Too often, Christians engage in friendly fire, and no one wins. And this has always been, this has always been a challenge for, for, for people who share a common faith, a common Lord, a common baptism, that as we engage together with, with one another in, in a common cause, that we begin to battle one another Instead of, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Too often, we engage in friendly fire. And, and this has always been a problem. I think it's been exacerbated um, because of the internet. Just as warfare has changed, last night our family watched 19, uh, no, we watched Midway, about the Battle of Midway in 1942. But... Um, Think of how warfare has changed and adapted. Now so much warfare is almost like my kid's PS4, right? It happens almost like a video game. And, and in some ways, that has made it so much easier for us to snipe at one another, to blog about one another, to at, to tweet about one another. Too often we engage in friendly fire, but we're called to be, uh, we're, we're called to grace-filled living first and foremost to one another. So here's an observation. I see, I see two common issues that Christians battle over with one another. Two very prevalent things that cause divisions. And the first is secondary doctrine. Listen, doctrine is important. Doctrine is absolutely important. We're going to spend the next 12 weeks looking at the core doctrines of our faith. Doctrine is important, and doctrines will divide. But let's make sure that 
we draw those dividing lines generously and graciously. And that when, when we divide, that we are doing so in, in a gracious way. Not over tertiary or even secondary things, but over primary concerns. So what this means very practically is that you and I, we can grab a cup of coffee or we can grab a beer and then we can sit down and discuss whether or not Christians should drink caffeine or beer. And we can do so in a friendly way. That means that, that we can discuss complementarianism or egalitarianism. We can discuss gender roles, both in the home and the church. There's so many different things. We can, I, um, this past week, someone asked me my eschatological position. They said, what's your eschatology? And I said, well, I'm premillennial. They said, that really shocks me. I didn't expect that. I said, well, I was born in 1976. I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm certainly premillennial. That did happen. I'm actually pan-millennial. I think it's just all going to pan out in the end, and I'm not sure. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm actually all-millennial, to be really honest with you. My point being that we can have all of these discussions about really important things. And so some of you um, are, are new to the church, and you've gone through the Intro to CPC class, and I've shared this, but many of you, um, you've been members for a while, and I probably haven't shared this. But there are open-handed issues and closed-handed issues. And Apostles' Creed kind of stuff goes in here. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And that, that, that creed follows a Trinitarian pattern. And in Jesus Christ is only Son, our Lord, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity, the divinity of Christ, the virgin birth, substitutionary atonement, literal resurrection, literal return of Christ. Those are closed-handed issues, primary issues. We can discuss these, but I don't, I'm not going to budge on these. Open-handed issues, some of the things I mentioned, eschatology, complementarianism or egalitarianism, um, Christian ethics, right? those are open-handed issues. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. We still hold them, and we hold them firmly, but we also hold them openly because maybe in eternity we find out that we shouldn't have been baptizing babies. A third of the church doesn't practice that, and I'm talking church with a capital C, globally, historically, universally. I, I believe in infant baptism and covenant, covenant baptism with all my heart, but I hold it with an open hand. Right? And too often, Christians, okay, if we're going to divide, we're going to divide over closed-handed issues. But too often, Christians divide over open-handed issues. Grace-filled living means that we approach one another with an attitude of grace, even when we disagree on important matters. They are important. Now, the second issue that I see dividing Christians within the church, and I think this is a, a, a fairly new trend, is politics. And I mentioned this last week, at least briefly. So what does Paul say? He says that we are united by one spirit and one mind. Now, that spirit is the Holy Spirit. We, we are united by the same spirit of God which lives in each one of us, and we've been given all the mind of Christ. Paul did not say that we're united by a political party or a particular presidential candidate. And, and I, I believe it is absolutely shameful 
when we express more commonality with people who despise Jesus yet agree with our politics than with other members of the body of Christ with whom we may disagree politically. I I read this article recently where one man was defending another man for being a jerk. (laughs) He's an online bully. And the man who was defending him said, you know, so-and-so is really a good guy. He's just abrasive online. He's not like that in real life. I'm not buying that. Who you are online is who you are. Facebook posts and Twitter rants and dank memes that mock others, none of that's exempt from the fruit of the Spirit. So Scott Sauls says that when we are following Jesus faithfully, that we will likely be too liberal for our conservative friends and too conservative for our liberal friends. The call here is that we, we live as the, as the church in a grace-filled community towards one another. So we stand together and we strive together for a common gospel cause. Now we also display, display grace-filled living by humility and sacrifice. Another way that we show grace to one another and display grace to one another is by humility and sacrifice. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, Paul is specifically addressing how, how we follow the example of Jesus in the ways that we relate to one another, in the ways that we treat one another. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Two quick thoughts. Humility. That's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Paul doesn't say, don't think about your own desires. He says, look not only to your own interest, but also, and of first importance, to the interest of others. And sacrifice. What is sacrifice? It's the posture of setting aside your desires and your preferences for the good of others. Sacrifice is me setting aside my uh, my desires, my preferences for your good. And so, young Christian, I don't even know if you think that is you, but listen up. Young Christian, you should regularly be asking, how does this honor the fathers and mothers of the faith? How can this sacrificially honor the fathers and mothers of the faith? Older Christian, you should regularly be asking, how does this serve and help the younger members of the church? And I think I can see both sides of this pretty clearly because this year I'll be 44, which means that I'm, I'm not a young pup anymore, but I'm, I'm not an old dog just yet either. Somewhere in the middle, so I can see both sides of it. You mean to get really practical? Younger Christian? I don't just mean, I mean by age. Younger person? You need to learn and grow and swallow hard and embrace a life of sacrifice and sing that old hymn that you think is hard to sing, but your fathers and mothers in the faith love it. An older believer? Listen to this quote that I came across this week from theologian A.J. Wilson. 
He says, false nostalgia for a bygone era is a powerful force, but we should not forget that the story of God's people is always pointing forward rather than backward. Our golden age is in the future, not the past. So both of us, young, old, middle-agers like me, how does this honor those who are older than us? How does this serve those who are younger than us? Both in age and maturity, humility, sacrifice. So all of us, whether we're young or old or somewhere in between, tend to view things from our own desires and our own perspectives, not from a posture of humility and sacrifice. And Paul's hope for the Philippian church and Christ's expectation of us is that we would be filled with grace and live graciously towards one another. Now, Grace-filled living extends beyond how we live with one another. It extends to how we interact with the world. So, so we are called to be a community of grace, a people of grace, to live filled with, a great, with, with graciousness towards one another, but also towards the world. Look with me at chapter 2, um, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, grumbling or complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I believe that Paul's getting at two very practical applications here. First, we're called to work out our own salvation, and that phrase has been a source of consternation for many Christians. Paul, the apostle of grace, is calling us to work out our salvation. He, he simply means this. Christian, you work out what God is working in. You practically manifest and live out a life of salvation that God is working in you. Or to put it even more simply, Christian and church, make every effort to ensure that your practice matches your profession that your walk matches your talk. Why? What's the, what's the, why, does he, why does he admonish this? Because he says the world sees this. We shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The world sees our practice. The world watches our walk. Friends, the church sees our baptism. But the world sees our beautiful expression of salvation and how we live. And so what this means is that we may possess grace and we may profess grace, but if we do not project grace, I'm going to hold on to that one and use that as another sermon later. We can profess it and possess it, but if we're not projecting, displaying, living a life of grace to the watching world, then we are not working out what God is working in. And secondly, this is sort of an extension of, of that. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or complaining doesn't require a lot of explanation or commentary, but I'm going to give it just a little bit. Don't be a complainer. Don't be a whiner. What do any of us have to grumble about? 
God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. That's as, that's as bad. I mean, it's never going to get worse than that. What do we have to whine about? You're part of a body of believers who accepts you in spite of you. So don't multiply your faults, and we all have them, by, by complaining and whining. Again, notice the reason. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. When we display the grace of Jesus to a watching world, and we do so joyfully without grumbling, we show grace to a sinful world. Paul wanted that for the Philippians. Christ wants it for us. Now here's the second thought. Number two. The church is meant to be characterized by grace-filled giving. So look down at chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. I'm not going to read it. But in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, during that time while Paul was in Roman custody, the Philippians sent Timothy and Epaphroditus to be with him, to, to bring an offering, to bring supplies, to minister to him, to care for him during a portion of that time that he was in prison. And in, and in 19 through 30, Paul is telling the Philippians, it's now time for me to send Timothy and Epaphroditus back to you. And when they get there, you welcome them, you care for them, and you minister to them. And so here's the first thought. We're meant to graciously give of ourselves, and this is what Chris was, was locked on to. To give of ourselves, to give of our time, to give of our, our talents and gifts, to serve those in need. He, he's calling upon the Philippians, use your hospitality. You're a very hospitable giving church. Now give of yourselves to these two men. You've given them to me for a season. I'm returning them. Now you give, you give back to them. Serve them. Minister to them. What does this tangibly look like? Just a few examples I thought of here recently. Drew Tangren, he serves as a volunteer firefighter in Kellyville. He gives his time, he gives his skill to help his community. Richard and Carol Spears mentor kids from North Tulsa. A few of them were visiting with them a number of weeks ago. They, they model for those kids compassion. They help to tutor them. Judy Price Jeff and Judy, for years, have adopted kids from Nathan Hale High School. They feed them, tutor them. She's even housed them. Can a non-Christian give of themselves that way, those ways? Sure, absolutely. Many do. But when Christians give themselves in service, we do so without reward because we're not, we're not operating by karma. We're not doing in order to receive we're not mentoring kids from underprivileged places. We're not serving in our community and trying to keep it safe because we have some karmic idea that we put out and it's going to come back to us. We do so without reward. We do so as a response to the grace of Christ that we have received. And so one of the ways that we, that we display grace-filled giving is simply by giving of ourselves. Paul says, you, you Philippians are such a giving people. You've given of yourselves. Now give more. Give to Timothy and Epaphroditus. Meet their needs. Serve them. And there are myriad ways that we could extrapolate that and practically talk about how has Christ equipped us, called us, and placed us 
to give of ourselves. There's another kind of giving that should characterize the church. I want you to turn over. I want to read this. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. Philippians 4, 10 through 19. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here's a second, a second thought about grace-filled giving. We are meant to give financially, to support and promote the gospel. In verse 15, Paul calls this financial giving a partnership. He, he, he talks about the giving of the Philippians as a partnership. And over in chapter 1, verse 15, as Paul is thanking God for the Philippians, he thanks God for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. Same word, same idea. It's the same partnership. Paul calls this partnership in the go- Paul calls their financial giving a partnership in the gospel. Friends, giving financially to the church is not dues to a religious organization. So you can, you know, get the sticker for the back of your windshield for one more year. Financial giving to the church is not a guilt alleviation technique. That would be karma. Financial giving to the church is not merely about keeping the lights on and paying staff salaries. It's a gospel partnership. That's that's the language Paul uses. I thank God for your partnership in the gospel. At long last, you've revived your concern for me, and you've partnered with me in the gospel from the first day until the last. Friends, giving, giving to and through the church is a gospel practice. It's a response of grace to the grace that we've been given in Jesus. In Matthew 16, Jesus told Peter and the other disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, Jesus is building his church and not even hell can stop it. Jesus is continuing what began in the book of Acts. Jesus is using us to write Acts 29, and nothing is going to stop him. And a large part 
A large part of God's building blueprint, I will build my church, a large part of that happens through grace-filled financial giving. It's, it's not the way of the world, I understand, but it is the way of God's word. God's people. We are recipients of grace, and we're called to be conduits and respond to that grace, to be a grace-filled people in the church. And when people think of that small church on 51st Street off of I-44, I would love for them to say they are a grace-filled people in the way they serve one another, in the way they serve their community, in the way they give of themselves. They are a people of grace. And it's through living and giving grace that Christ will continue to build his church. Let's pray towards that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are, are a giver, that you gave your only begotten son, and your son gave his life uh, for us. And so we are not trying to in any way encroach on Jesus' territory. We're not trying to be functional self-saviors. We don't believe in any kind of karma. So when we give of ourselves, whether it's, whether it's to the ministries and missions of the church or, in, um, or, or, or next week, whether it's to the deacon offering or in all the ways that we give, even ministering to one another with our time and talents, it is simply a response of grace because we are recipients of grace. Let us be characterized as a community of grace. We are so thankful. It makes all the difference in the world, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask all these things in his name. Amen.